On today's episode of the Showtime Movie Podcast, I wanted to try something a little different because, well, last week was a little different itself. Here in Toronto, we just experienced the Toronto International Film Festival, otherwise known as TIFF. It's one of the largest movie festivals in the world, and the organization saw fit to give me a press credential this year. Awesome. So because of that, I managed to see 10 movies in the last week, and we're going to review them all in the next two very special episodes. All that's coming up next, right here on the Showtime Movie Podcast. Hello everyone, you're listening to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm Show as always, and as I just mentioned, this is a special tip episode of It's Showtime. Firstly, let me just say I'm exhausted. I spent pretty much the last week standing in line and sitting by myself in darkened movie theaters. Well, okay. When I say by myself, I mean in packed theaters with hundreds of other press, general media, and industry people. And, you know, I actually met a lot of interesting people at TIFF this year, largely in the industry, certainly. I met a guy who had been authorized by his distribution company to spend up to $10 million on films. That's a lot of money. I met another dude who was there from Netflix. There was a guy from Bleecker Street, from a bunch of different companies, distribution studios, etc., production companies. And of course, I met a bunch of critics in person as well, people from the LA Times, Vanity Fair. It's pretty cool, actually. I even met a, uh, a gentleman who was selling his script, a nice Canadian guy who owned his own telecommunications company. So if we ever see that in theaters, he'll definitely come on the show. So in any case, it's been a busy few weeks, hence the delay between episodes. My apologies. But the upside is that some of the movies I've seen at TIFF are actually now in theaters, while, of course, others you know, won't be coming out for quite some time. So actually, before we before we go any further, here's a list of the movies I saw in order, okay? So in this order, I saw these movies from one to however many, right? So The Predator, The Sisters Brothers, Destroyer, A Star is Born, White Boy Rick, Donnie Brook, Widows, Can You Ever Forgive Me, The Hummingbird Project, First Man, Green Book. So those are the movies I saw. That's actually 11 movies, so my bad. Mistake in the intro. Can you ever forgive me? I'm so sorry. (laughs) Sorry. Anyways, we're going to get to the first half of these films in this episode, and stay tuned for TIFF special episode number two, which is where we'll tackle the other half. I mean, half of 11 is actually five and a half, so you can't really do like half a review, right? So we'll do six reviews in this episode and five reviews in the other episode. And we'll use the other episode to talk about some of the awards chatter as well. Okay, deal? However, that means in this one we'll be doing The Predator, The Sisters Brothers, Destroyer, A Star is Born, White Boy Rick, and Donnybrook, which is an interesting mix of bad, decent, good, brilliant, right? So I find that kind of interesting and a great thematic mix, let's say, but... First, let's start with the very first movie I saw at TIFF this year, one that is currently in theaters, which is the latest entry in the universe of The Predator. Predators exploit weakness, tracks its prey like a game, seems to enjoy it. That's not a predator, that's a sports hunter. Well, we took a vote. Predator's cooler, right? Fuck yeah. You know, if I had to pick just one part of this movie that really encompass the whole thing it'd probably be that clip you just heard you know the whole oh it's not really a predator oh yeah well we took a vote predator sounds cooler says sterling k brown f yeah you know (laughs) i got a lot of laughs in the audience 
the cynical press audience. I don't know. It's pretty silly. And you know what? This whole movie is silly. And maybe it's because the Arnold Schwarzenegger movie is also pretty silly, but I don't know what to tell you. This movie, that that really does sum up The Predator here in 2018, right? I mean, in the years since Schwarzenegger's movie, I think it was 1987, right? Since The Predator, or just Predator, I should say. This is, this is The Predator. The 1987 movie was just Predator, okay? There have been a lot of pretenders to the, you know, Predator throne. Predator 2 with Danny Glover. There was Predators with Adrian Brody. There was, of course, the Alien versus Predator movies. I don't know, right? Shane Black directed this one. We'll move on from the old movies. But Shane Black directed this one. Of course, he directed Iron Man 3, The Nice Guys. And, of course, if you forget, Shane Black was actually an actor in the original Predator movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Of course, he's one of the... I mean, well, I guess his whole squad dies in that movie, right? Oh, spoiler alert. But, yeah, Shane Black is one of the other soldiers who die. And... This one here is envisioned as a modern-day entry in the franchise. Of course, the Danny Glover one takes place in the city, the urban jungle, as you might uh, imagine, right? And this movie does actually make references to the events of 1987 and 1990, the one with Danny Glover, and it does involve some, you know, predator-on-predator violence, or some alien dogs, you know, lots of violence in general, I should say, and it's kind of weird, you know, gone are the days of brawny Arnold Schwarzenegger and Carl Weathers. You remember that gif that everyone uses? It's like the guys like, you know, they're like, they clap hands together and, you know, again, gone are the kind of world where I'm too over this shit tones of Danny Glover and instead we get in the kind of modern action hero vein, you know, a lean, wiry, sarcastic kind of protagonist. Boyd Holbrook is the kind of Hero of this movie, he's in Logan. Of course, he. I think I believe he. I believe he's most famous for Netflix's Narcos. He's kind of the star of Narcos, along with uh, Pedro Pascal, right? So the two of them have that show. But Boyd Holbrook is the predator hunter, the main predator, of course, and he is an army sniper who witnessed the predator's arrival on Earth, of course, only to be decommissioned and shuttled off to some part of America where nobody will believe him, right? Along with some misfits, let's say maybe that's a a. a generous word, right, who suffer from some more real disorders, you know, PTSD, depression, delusion, suicidal tendencies, so on, right? And, of course, Olivia Munn, as you heard in that clip as well, uh, she is pretty famous as well, X-Men Apocalypse, ton of other movies. She's all along for the ride of a biologist who is, quote-unquote, on call for events like these, which apparently includes imminent alien arrival. Why the, you know, and these movies also have the kind of standard, the rote role of government agent, which is played by Sterling K. Brown. Of course, he's in TV's This Is Us. He's been in Brooklyn Nine-Nine. He's pretty famous these days. I thought he, he might be my favorite part of the movie, I think, right? Let me tell you this. If you're searching for good acting, okay, if you're searching for Oscar-worthy acting, The Predator is not where you should be looking. It is the wrong place to start. Okay, this movie is full of hammy one-liners like you just heard, jokes about Tourette syndrome, lots of action, and Black, I, I think, at the very least, seems to be fully aware, and he makes use of the comedic leadings of all involved, including himself, right? I mean, I mentioned he did Iron Man 3 and The Nice Guys. He also did Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which was also with Robert Downey Jr., of course, back in the, I want to say 90s, early 2000s, the absolute latest, and 
He's really good at it. What can I say? The it, it is campy and it's silly and the one-liners, like I mentioned, they fly fast and furious. They just come and come and come and come and come and go and go and go and go and go. And if you don't like that, you're not going to like this movie because this movie is all about that kind of thing, right? But it does make use of the people's skills, the actor's skills involved. Thomas Jane, I mentioned uh, Tourette Syndrome. He has Tourette Syndrome. And Keegan-Michael Key, of course, from Key and Peele, they're pretty great together as, like, these two soldiers who have some issues together and, you know, they're, they're both among the misfit kind of PTSD unit. Trevante Rhodes, of course, I believe most people would know from Moonlight. He is the eldest version of Chiron in uh, Moonlight. He's the last version of him you see in the film, the one the movie ends with, right? And so he is another one of the misfits. And then, of course, we got Jacob Tremblay, who is, of course, Canadian, good old Canadian boy, right? And he is the kind of autistic son of Boyd Holbrook's character, and he becomes pretty crucial to the plot, as you might imagine. I don't know if the film really needed a kid, but you know what? I like Jacob Tremblay, so whatever, he's fine. But You come to this movie not for the acting, not necessarily for the actors. I don't think anyone was coming to this movie to see Boyd Holbrook, right? You're coming to this movie to see the action sequences, right? That's the film's main draw, and they're pretty entertaining. There's a kind of Frankensteinian lab escape involving the Predator near the beginning, and he kind of hacks and slashes his way to freedom. He has all these crazy gadgets like that shoot razor blade things out of his wrists and chop humans in half, and he can, like, has those kind of... I don't know if you remember from the original one. It's kind of these like, dual claw-like thingies, and he, like, stabs people to death. And you know what? It's really fun to watch. I don't know how good it actually is, right? Because it's not exactly John Wick, let's say. I think John Wick seems to be the kind of modern example of what action movies should be, but I think Shane Black intentionally made this movie campy and silly. And in that sense, I think this movie actually knows exactly what it is. The plot details are thrown out so quickly and are moved on from so quickly that... And it's not, it's not hard to keep up, but it doesn't really matter, I guess is what I'm trying to say, right? You're there to see aliens kick ass and then eventually have their ass get kicked by the superior humans. And maybe superior is the wrong word, but the you know ingen- ingenuity of humans, right? And that's what Shane Black delivers in spades. So if you want to see this movie, it is in theaters now. It came out on the 14th. So if you do want to see it, go ahead and see it. If you're a big fan of action movies or alien action movies or you just want to see the next Predator movie... You know what? This movie is for you because it's on the same level as other movies I've reviewed on the podcast like Rampage and so on, right? Although I think this movie is a little more fun than those movies, I would say, right? Those movies kind of were bad, and this is also bad in the same way, but I think because it's it's self-aware about it, it's almost more acceptable, but regardless... If you're here to see some alien carnage, Shane Black knows what he's doing, so you should go see The Predator if that's the case. I initially was going to follow the order of movies here in terms of how I had initially listed them in earlier in this very episode, but I decided to switch it up a bit. I kind of wanted to get to the films that are currently in theaters first, which is why I led with The Predator, so in that sense, let's continue that trend before we move on to the ones yet to be released. So, you've all probably seen this trailer in front of movies for the past few months, as I have, But just in case you haven't, this movie is about a true story inspired by a true story that really has only come into the public consciousness over the last year, maybe maybe two years max. So let's get right to it. The latest Matthew McConaughey joint, White Boy Rick.
Boy Rick is such a fascinating movie. You know, I mean, I think pretty much immediately it's like watching a few episodes of Narcos strung together. That's kind of my immediate reaction, how I felt right as I left the theater. Except, of course, it takes place in the ghetto of Detroit with a lot more white people, right? But it's essentially about uh, Rick Worsha Jr. Uh, it's based on a true story, who sells guns with his father, Ricky Sr. And after his father gets into a spot of trouble, he becomes an informant for the FBI. And of course, as these things usually do, it goes sideways, but not before Rick Jr. manages to live a bit of the high life for himself and his family. And it involves a lot of skullduggery with the police, and he's an informant, like I mentioned, for the FBI, who sells drugs at their behest. You know, he kind of does a lot of this stuff initially to get his father out of jail, or to keep his father out of jail. His father doesn't actually go to jail, but to keep him out of jail, I should say. And it's an interesting story because it touches a lot on issues of class, race, gender. There's some other issues like drug abuse, gun ownership, friendship, of course, all of that stuff. But because it tries to do all of that, it doesn't really do any of it all that well. If that makes sense, you know what I mean? Like a jack of all trades, master of none type of thing. Like, here's an example. The first part of the movie is about Rick becoming an informant, right? And then the second part of the movie is about him dealing drugs. And then the third part of the movie is about him getting over his head and eventually arrested, right? And it's all just a bit disjointed, which is kind of unfortunate because each part has some really compelling moments in it. But in the end, it kind of feels like there were three separate movies the director, Jan Demange, wanted to make. And it's not that it's bad. You know what I mean? It's not that it's bad. It's just kind of generic. It's kind of bland. It's kind of just there. It's kind of better on paper, if that makes sense, right? So White Boy Rick has some great ideas behind it. It just doesn't really ever come together at really any point. And I think, too, a big problem of it is that you never really get a sense of what Rick is like inside, right? You get an idea of what he wants, and maybe that's it. But you never really get an idea of who he is, right? I mean, Richie Merritt, who is a relatively new actor, I think this might even be his first movie, he plays, you know, white boy Rick, quote-unquote, and we don't really get to know him all that much. Not him, the actor, certainly, but we just never really get to know Rick. Rick's motivations are pretty opaque, I guess, and maybe that's the point, right? Maybe that's the point, because everything is... Everything that happens in this movie is pretty extraordinary, and he seems pretty ordinary. So maybe that is actually the point, but it's just weird because after the first act, the first act, uh, which I mentioned, is him becoming an informant, Matt McConaughey, who is uh, Rick Sr., the character's father, he ends up feeling like the main character. And it's not so bad, of course, because he's a fine actor. It's just strange that the dad, who this movie is not supposed to be about, feels like the main character, right? He's the one running around doing stuff. He's the one helping people out. He's the one talking and talking and talking while Rick Jr. just listens and listens and listens, right? And let me just take a pause here and say this on McConaughey because he's amazing. He has made a few flops, critically and commercially, after winning the Oscar. And then he got nominated, if you guys remember, for an Emmy for True Detective. But I think this could be another win for him, honestly. His portrayal of this kind of seedy, slimy, poor criminal salesman, right? But he also cares very deeply for his family. It's, it's kind of heartbreaking, almost. I mean, there's a scene where 
he and Rick Jr. go into this kind of drug den to rescue his daughter, uh, Rick Jr.'s sister, Dawn, and she fights him, screaming and crying. She kind of like, like, Rick Jr. goes into the room first, and he says, Dawn, we're here to get you. And she's like, oh, okay, Rick, okay, uh, maybe I'll come home. She's clearly, like, under the influence of lots of drugs. And then the father comes in, and she starts screaming, like, no, no, get away. And, she, and he kind of picks her up and carries her down the hall as she's fighting him the whole while, screaming and screaming and hitting him and scratching him. And, she, and she's crying, and he's crying. <laughs> it was probably the most single intense part of this movie, and it really makes you feel for Rick Sr. And it's all, it's all really a testament to Matthew McConaughey. There's even a scene following that. You kind of see as she's trying to kick her habit and and Rick uh, Sr. essentially locks her in her bedroom and, you know, he brings her dinner every night. He still talks to her, but she's like, you know, obviously like trying to detox and she's like getting it all out of her system. So she throws the food at the wall and he's very patient and kind. And it's just interesting because throughout the whole movie, both he and his son and Bruce Dern is in this movie uh, very briefly as the grandfather who lives next door. It's just interesting because the 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 portrayal of McConaughey changes slightly as he kind of moves away from the idea of doing criminal activities because he's afraid that his son isn't isn't too deep isn't over his head and of course he is right so I don't know it's just I think Matthew McConaughey is easily the best part of this movie I think I could see him winning an Oscar for it. I think yeah, let me put it this way I think he deserves to win the Oscar I don't really know if he will for sure I mean I don't know the other Best Supporting Actor nominations, because that would be certainly the category he would get nominated slash win for. But I think a big part of the Oscars as well is that the movie itself has to be relatively decent, right? So the next movie we're going to talk about, or one of the next movies we're going to talk about on this episode is Destroyer. And Nicole Kimmon is going to come up in that review. Will she win? She probably deserves to win, but will she win considering the rest of the movie... You know, maybe not as exciting as that, but she could win because the rest of Destroyer is actually pretty good, whereas the rest of White Boy Rick, for example, is kind of mediocre, right? And I mean, ultimately, like I mentioned before, this movie is kind of generic. You don't really feel for Rick. You don't really feel for his friends. You don't really feel for the other drug dealers or the people who are affected by all this stuff. You only really feel for the dad, and he's not the main character, right? Really, at the end of the day, I'll say this. I think this one can just be chalked up to being better on paper, but lacking a bit in execution. I know I basically just teased Destroyer at the end of the White Boy Rick review, but I will get to Destroyer next. That'll be the one we do right after this. But for this one, I wanted to get to this film because I kind of wanted to do the movies in kind of ascending order of how I enjoyed them. That's not to say that, actually, if that was the case, this movie would, I should have gone first because I think I enjoyed this movie the least, but, you know, The Predator and White Boy Rick had their problems, but it was kind of enjoyable, right? But regardless, this movie was kind of bleak. It's a bleak look at the idea of poverty, specifically, I would say, in the American Rust Belt, because White Boy Rick, for example, is a kind of a look at poverty and people in poverty in Detroit, and this is more like in Ohio and the Midwest kind of thing. So anyways, I maybe I've piqued your interest, maybe I have not, but regardless, let's move on. This movie is called Donnybrook. Like I mentioned, this might be the movie I enjoyed the least at TIFF, and it's not that I, I hated it. I did not completely hate this movie because, frankly, it's well executed, acted, shot, scripted, all that stuff. It just didn't really do anything for me personally, right? And 
the basic plot of Donnybrook is that it's about, at its core, as I mentioned again, life in the American Rust Belt, the Midwest, Ohio kind of area where poverty is a way of life, right? And it focuses on two criminals who go about their lives in different ways. And you know what? Let me let me read you the official TIFF description of this movie. I know that's a bit of a cheat, kind of cheating, but because I connected with this film personally so little, I feel like it would this would do it more justice than I could possibly ever do. And so it reads, Earl, Jamie Bell, and Angus, Frank Grillo, both inhabit society's fringes. Their similarities stop there. Jarhead Earl is a veteran, husband, and father of two. His cancer-stricken wife needs expensive treatment, leading him to commit crimes that go against his nature. Chainsaw Angus, on the other hand, runs a local meth ring with his sister, Delia, Margaret Quayley. Having, having long suffered his emotional and physical beatings, she is looking for a way out. With a well-intentioned, if a little corrupt and a lot drunk, local sheriff, James Badge Dale, Hot on their tails, the two men are destined to meet at the Donnybrook, where the last man standing in a bare-knuckle cage fight takes home a cash prize of $100,000. Though faced with a succession of miserable choices, Earl fights bravely for his family's future. Having left a trail of death and destruction in his wake, Angus fights to quench an unspecified thirst for revenge. Goes on to say, with his brutal and unrelenting style, director Tim Sutton holds nothing back and neither do his actors. Bell, Grillo, and Quayley all deliver stunning, raw performances. At once uncomfortably gritty and palpably polished. It's a great word, eh? Palpably. Donnybrook explores an America that's struggling to overcome its demons and those within it struggling to crawl, claw, I should say, their way back. And it sounds compelling, don't you think? And unfortunately, it's kind of not. I mean, don't get me wrong. I kind of agree with the synopsis. Bell, Grillo, and Quayley are all awesome. You might remember Jamie Bell, of course, from the Billy Elliot musical. Frank Grillo has been in the Captain America movies. He was that corrupt Hydra agent. Uh, Crossbones. Remember in, in Winter Soldier, he goes, he's just the nerdy kid, you know, you know, press the button, kid, and the kid goes, I can't, Captain's orders, and then there's, like, a shootout in the S.H.I.E.L.D. headquarters. He's, like, that guy, and he comes, he shows up again at the very beginning of uh, Captain America Civil War. But, yeah, he's in those movies, and Margaret Qualley, I haven't seen a lot of, but I've only ever seen her in a television show, which is The Leftovers, HBO's The Leftovers, and she was awesome in that movie, or rather in that TV show. And they also, as you can tell, they all have pretty varied backgrounds and it shows, but they're all pretty excellent. I love the ruthlessness of Grillo. You know, Bell has this kind of unspecified, undetermined sadness. And Quayley does all these kind of crazy, demented acts, right? And she's like sad and crying while she's doing them, but also smiling at the same time. It's kind of creepy, you know? And I think I think it's just that this film is so damn dark. You know, Earl, Jamie Bell's character, gets into fights and gets drunk and eventually loses someone close to him. Angus kills and kills and kills. And on top of it, he abuses his sister. And of course, Delia's character, or rather Quayley's character, Delia, is clearly hurt. And as a result, she's a little crazy, like I mentioned, and does things just to feel again. And you know what? Ultimately, she suffers a horrible fate as well, right? I mean, even when the protagonist, Earl, gets to the Donnybrook, bad things happen and it ends in a sad note. It, there's no real respite here, you know? And maybe that's the point. That for people whom, for whom poverty is a way of life, as I mentioned before, that there is no respite, right? I can empathize with that. I can sympathize with that as well, right? I mean, 
we all didn't grow up rich or grow up super fortunate, right? You grew up in the ways you grow up, and I think you can empathize with that a little bit, but maybe because it's like there's one non-white person in this entire film, and he was like an extra for five seconds, maybe because it fetishizes guns, maybe because because it's about America and like these like the idea that these people are like the core of America or at the core of America, or maybe it's because you can clearly picture all of these people being Trump voters. I don't really know what it is. I don't know if it's because of my personal politics or because of, or what have you. I just don't really know. I, I can't really connect with anything in this movie, even though I can appreciate the performances, if that makes sense, right? There was actually a fun point. I do admit, I think it's probably my favorite part of the whole movie. When they finally actually get to the Donnybrook and they have like these, this biker chick, you know, like her 50s, sing the American National Anthem. And I thought it was a poignant addition considering the topic constantly being the news, thanks to Colin Kaepernick, certainly former NFL quarterback. The whole idea, the debate now is, what is the anthem really about? Is it about being patriotic? If you if you kneel on the anthem or if you're not paying attention during the Adam, does that, uh, anthem, does that make you a bad American? You know, what is the anthem really about? It got a chuckle out of the audience, probably for all those reasons, right? But then it just moved on, and it got, went back to being super bleak. It was like the only really funny part in the whole movie. And you know what? Actually, I was re- I was really looking here at the uh, the synopsis I just read. There's the sheriff character as well. I forgot about him. I don't even know what the hell the point of his character was because he dies halfway through the movie without accomplishing literally anything. Literally nothing. This guy accomplishes, right? He just gets drunk, he stalks his ex wife, and then he dies. Like, what the hell? Maybe maybe it was just to show the antagonist is a bad guy, right? But we already knew that, right? We already knew that Angus is a bad person. I don't know. It just seemed like there was no real point of this movie. It's just that, look how bleak life is. Life is bleak, huh? Yeah, okay, well, everyone's dead now, so uh, thanks for watching. Roll credits. And it's just, it was just kind of strange. I'm not sure what this movie was trying to make me feel. Again, what point in general was trying to make. And you know what? I'll leave it at this. Unless you like feeling sad and confused after you watch movies, I would maybe give this one a pass. Okay, finally, we've gotten here. And I don't just mean to destroy her since I teased it like one full movie review ago, but to the three movies I liked the most. None of the whole festival, I should say. I think two of the top three movies I saw will be coming in the next episode. Those are probably the, the, the top two movies, I should say. Like, numbers one and two will be coming in the next episode, but these are... These next three movies are probably in some order three, four, and five. And if, I, if I'm thinking about it, I think Destroyer is probably number five. I would say that I saw it, Tiff. And it's largely because of Nicole Kidman. You know, I mentioned her earlier when we were talking about awards and whatnot, and she is just so fantastic. She's unrecognizable. And that's not to say she's bad regularly, because, that you know, I'm not saying that she is so good that she's unrecognizable, right? But it, it's just that she's unrecognizable here because of how much she disappears into the role. And the role is Erin Bell. She's this kind of grizzled, worn, hardened detective for the LAPD, and she drinks a lot, she's kind of mean, speaks with a rasp, you know? Essentially, she's every noir detective you've ever seen, right? She's She'd be right at home with Dirty Harry or even, I don't know, Jimmy McNulty from The Wire, right? Like, Aaron feels as though she's right out of their worlds. And it's kind of cool because how often do you see women in these types of roles, right? Not very often, really, if ever, so it's kind of amazing that they not only did this at all, but that they did it so damn well. She's sad, she's vulnerable, but like I said, she's mean and harsh, and she's that way because she's had to deal with a mean and harsh world, right? And I mean, the plot in a nutshell 
revolves around a dead body that Belle finds at the beginning of the film, which triggers some unpleasant memories for her, and she makes her makes her realize that in order to solve this case, she'll have to dive into her past and confront some long-buried issues, and Sebastian Stan is in this as well as a fellow police officer, and it's a pretty fantastic performance from him, too. And really, all of the secondary actors, along with Stan, like Toby Keeble, Bradley Whitford, Canada's own Tatiana Maslany, of course, she's always great, all put in some great performances. Maybe I'm biased, but I loved Maslany the most after Kidman. She gives a portrayal of this kind of broken drug abuser some real depth, and I dare say that the real star, one of the real stars, maybe second after... Kidman is actually the director, Karen Kusama, right? She makes some awesome choices with the camera. Like, there's a close-up on the antagonist's face when he's speaking to Belle, but instead is actually looking directly at the camera, so it's like he's looking right into the audience, which is really cool. I loved hearing the calls of, you know, the various Dodgers games over the radio, and you even see Belle and another character looking over a hill down at Dodger Stadium in Los Angeles. And there were, great, some, there were some great comedic moments as well, uh, most of them which involved... Uh, Bradley Whitford yelling at his son. It was an interesting dynamic between Belle and pretty much everyone else that because it pretty much sets her aside at odds, sets her aside from every character she meets, right? Whether it's her ex-husband, her daughter, her co-workers, the villains. And I think what makes it visually appealing as well is the switch between the past and the present. Because you have to see the choices that Aaron made back then, which made her into the kind of gruff detective she is today right because of that it kind of allows karen kusama to play around with the narrative a little bit and it pays off in a pretty huge way at the end i think it's one of the more satisfying movies i've seen at the festival the storytelling is just so dense you know what i mean like the narrative it's it's not easily done to make a movie that's dense but also entertaining like a lot of it is very it's just very heavy, yeah. Dense and heavy are the words I would use to describe this movie more than anything else because it's not that it's 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 not very fun. You know what I mean? Like fun is a movie like The Predator, which is like campy and silly. But and not to say that dense and heavy movies can't be fun. That that's not what I'm saying, right? Moonlight was a very entertaining movie because it does what it does so well. And while Destroyer also does that, I think because it's another story about police and that kind of thing, it's kind of sad. Ultimately, I think it's very, very good. Don't get me wrong. I'm not trying to put this movie down at all. I think I just think that the only real flaw is that because it's such a slow burn that you might sometimes lose a little interest. But I think that's also the fact that it's a noir detective movie, right? I mean, Blade Runner is like that as well. Blade Runner, the first one and 2049, which came out last year, right? Both of those movies are slow burns, which are still entertaining, but as much as I love them, they can be a little boring sometimes. And I think Destroyer is kind of in that same vein, but I think because it is, it means it's a success, right? That means it is like all the noir movies I've ever seen. And maybe that's just to say, maybe that, yeah, maybe that's what that's telling me, I should say, that I'm just not a huge fan of noir movies, but this movie was so good that I really liked it regardless. So in that sense... That's why it's one of the more satisfying movies I've seen at the festival. And when it comes out in theaters, you have got to see it because of the ending is fantastic and the work done by Kidman and Kusama probably are some of the best of their career. And I would be shocked, like I mentioned before, I would be shocked that if Nicole Kidman did not get a nomination for this movie. I would be completely blown away. It's kind of reminiscent to me of Charlize Theron in, in Monster from like last, the last decade or something. I, I don't even know how long ago that movie came out. Early 2000s, let's say, I think. In that same, in that general time frame and i think 
Nicole Kidman probably deserves to win. Will she win? This is kind of the issue I brought up with Matthew McConaughey and White Boy Rick, right? Will she win? I don't think she will, honestly. I think there are some other actresses that will be getting some... Mm, how do I put this? Some more press, I guess. I wouldn't be surprised if she was kind of the dark horse, but I guess we'll see when the award shows start coming up in a few months, right? But Nicole Kidman's performance is definitely award-worthy, and the rest of the movie is good enough that it could be as seen as one of those kind of highbrow, artsy-fartsy choices. And that's, that's, I'm not to say that's... I'm not, I don't want to be... I don't want that to sound like I'm putting her down or putting this movie down. It's just the Oscars are a little... They're a little pretentious. I mean, I love them dearly, but they're a little pretentious. I think you have to be aware of that when you talk about the awards. And I think there's there's a certain level of showmanship that goes into who gets what award, right? And I think we'll talk about A Star is Born a little later on in this, po- in this podcast episode, but that'll be a big contender. And Lady Gaga could be the one that steals it away from Nicole Kidman. But right now, I think it's a Lady Gaga-Nicole Kidman race, okay? But regardless, this movie is awesome. And when it comes out in theaters, please go see it. We're now getting into the movies I think I might have enjoyed the most at TIFF. Or maybe, I mean, I did kind of say the top two movies are coming next episode, and that's true. But the top four movies are so wildly different from one another that it's hard to really compare them. So in that sense, these next two movies are just as good as the two movies that are, I'm going to talk about, the top two movies that are going to come around. I don't want to say tomorrow. I keep saying tomorrow, right? But I mean in the, on the next episode, I should say, right? But... This movie is easily one of the most anticipated movies for me personally because I love Westerns. I love Joaquin Phoenix. I love John C. Riley. I love Jake Gyllenhaal, Riz Ahmed. I love the book this movie is based on. So without further ado, let's get to the review of the world premiere of The Sisters Brothers. The Sisters Brothers, as I mentioned, was something that I had been looking forward to for a while. It was a movie that was set in a period, that of the Western, as I mentioned, that I'm very fond of. And it had a great cast as well, you know, Joaquin Phoenix, John C. Riley, Jake Gyllenhaal, Riz Ahmed. All of them are fantastic. So it's based on a book by Canadian author Patrick DeWitt, who lives out on Vancouver Island in the West Coast. And I greatly enjoyed the novel, and the novel and the movie are pretty much very similar. They don't really change a lot. It's very basic in terms of plot. Two brothers, Charlie and Eli, sisters, hence the title, are two assassins for hire who work for the mysterious Commodore, who, on this particular job, are are sent out to find a man who has allegedly stolen from him. His name is Warm, a prospector, of course, As you might imagine, along the way, Charlie and Eli encounter all sorts of trouble, including from each other. And as I mentioned, the cast is terrific, but the chemistry and acting specifically from the two brothers is what's most important at all times, right? Charlie, who is the violent, ill-tempered, drunken brother, is Joaquin Phoenix's character, while the younger, or rather the older, thoughtful, softer Eli is uh, John C. Riley, And of course, Phoenix is great as Charlie, right? Brooding at times, rude to his brother, aggressive, prideful, boastful. He's everything you might imagine the stereotype of a younger brother to me. And I'm sorry if my younger brother is listening to this. You're not really like that. Not really, right? <laughs> I'm kidding. But Joaquin Phoenix is a fantastic actor in general. So is that really a surprise? His performance is good? Probably not. However, the star... The absolute standout of this film, to me, is John C. Riley. 
he lends this sort of gentle, kind appearance to the massive Eli, which of course can't be helped. John C. Riley is a large dude, right? But I think what got me was not just the fact that he had sort of resigned himself to helping his younger brother, but it was the sadness that accompanies him, right? One that you kind of learn he carries because he feels responsible for the way Charlie turned out after an abusive upbringing by their father. He's the protective older brother, and maybe it appealed to the older brother in me. As I mentioned, I have a sibling. I have two younger siblings, actually. One, my brother is eight years younger than me, and one, my sister is 10 years younger than me. So maybe that's what got me. I don't know, but it was a really great portrayal. And what, what kind of also got me is that despite this softness, this sadness, he is a real badass, right? I mean, you see it throughout the whole movie. I mean, the movie starts with the gunfight you see in the trailer, but there's a moment where Charlie, who is the take-charge, aggressive one, as I mentioned, he gets incapacitated, right? And Eli is forced to exit a building to kind of face off against five armed goons. And you know, you, the viewer, know, Eli, the character, knows that he is going out there by himself, okay? You've never really seen him do this stuff by himself. He always had Charlie to back him up, so you kind of expect the worst, right? And the camera work by director Jacques Odiar doesn't let you see Eli as he exits. You just see him walk out the door, the door closes behind him, and you don't really see what happens. And all of a sudden, you just hear gunfire, people screaming, and you immediately think that Eli is dead, or at least is in the process of dying, and then suddenly the camera cuts to the exterior, and we see Eli walking down the middle of the street. Dead bodies all around him. I mean, yeah, he has a, he's a gunshot wound in his arm, but... I'd say that's a pretty small price to pay for taking out five armed bounty hunters by yourself, right? It was just a great way to show how badass Eli is on his own, considering all the other times you see him do stuff. It's with Charlie, and it's just cool. It was a really cool way to do that. I really appreciated it by the director. I really appreciated just John C. Riley's portrayal of him in general. And again, in general, the movie is great. I mean, I almost feel like it wasn't really a Western you know, like it has some tropes in it for sure. Like the camera, you know, is looking at a hilly horizon only for the protagonists to saunter up onto their on their horses, kind of into view. Their brimmed hats full of dust, guns in hand, or at least their hands on the holster, right, and the butt of their guns. It's a pretty typical Western shot, right? Stuff like that makes it look like a Western, but lots of other bits and sequences take away from that idea, especially the ones with Gyllenhaal and Ahmed. They they kind of develop this strange friendship and respect, and even though. Otherwise, the general brutality of a Western is there. It kind of has a different feel, if that makes sense. You know, it almost feels like sometimes it was made as a Western just as an excuse, almost, to have them carry guns in the Old West, if that makes sense. I know it's based on a book, so the book is a Western, but the book almost seems like more of a Western than the movie does. But I think that seems to be a visual choice by Jacques Odiar. I think, I mean, yeah, everything looks like it takes place in the Wild West. It just sometimes the dialogue and the, the things they say and do don't really feel just like a Western, if that makes sense. It feels more modern. Maybe that's just the age we live in in terms of movies in general, but... Even so, a little, a little bit of a weird feeling, but I would say this movie is a little weird in general, I would say, right? But one of the other things I really liked about this movie is there are a lot of visceral moments in this film, okay? There's a, you know, they're sleeping on bedrolls in the middle of the outback or the middle of the wilderness, whatever you want to call it, and there's a moment where uh, there's a spider crawls into his Riley's mouth and the audience kind of screams, no, no, as it's happening. It's pretty great. You know, there's lots of gunplay, loud gunplay, you know, uh, of course, guns are not just automatic guns like you have today. They're guns that require you to reload them after a handful of shots. 
Uh, so that that was the sound design was great. It made it feel very real. Visceral, I think, is a great word for that, right? It makes it feel very very present in the film. You know, there are some stark changes from night to day and back again. They kind of make you wince and and glint as if you're waking up yourself. You know, there there's some really intense gore in the movie. Like when people are killed, there's some injuries shown, like some chemical burns. Because, of course, they did not have sophisticated chemical creating techniques back then. So it's all very, it's very graphic, I would say. It's very intense. And I appreciated that. I don't, I feel, it makes it feel, again, visceral, real, present. I think those are all words that describe this movie perfectly, I would say. And despite that, you know, you, the viewer, me, the viewer, we both know that John C. Riley is a great comedic actor. He's a fantastic comedian. Of course, we all know him from things like Step Brothers. Of course, we all know him from things like Talladega Nights, right? Of course, we know him from those movies. But we also know he's a great actor, just like Joaquin Phoenix is. And we know him mostly from movies like, what, Gladiator, Her, more recently, right? Movies like that. So that's, I think, what... You take away from that, but the comedy is present in every scene, and and maybe a large part of that is because you know John C. Riley is funny, so that the expectation that he is, you know, funny in quotes is there. But everyone has some great moments, but the interplay between the two brothers is easily the highlight of this movie. Easily, easily, easily the highlight, and it delivers in every every fashion when it comes to the sisters' brothers, Charlie and Eli's sisters. And to close, I guess for me. I was pretty hyped up for this movie, I admit. Maybe you can tell (laughs) by my voice, but it was the second movie I saw at the whole festival. And yet somehow, despite being hyped up, despite being excited to go to the festival as a member of the media for the first time, it's still delivered, right? I mean, I can see John C. Riley actually getting a Best Actor nomination for this one. He probably deserves to win. He probably, you know, I I think he should win, but... I think the next movie we're about to review might take the Best Actor award, actually, but regardless of whether he wins or not, John C. Riley is fantastic, the Sisters Brothers is fantastic. It's a treat to watch in every aspect. And I'll just say, when it hits theaters, you need to see it ASAP, even if you don't really like Westerns, because it is really enjoyable. And I think even though it has some really intense moments, at the end of the movie, you kind of feel pleased having watched it. And I think it's worth the time to go see it in the cinema. This last movie for this episode, I would say is the third best movie I saw at TIFF this year. Maybe, maybe I should rephrase that. I think it's the, th- the the movie I enjoyed the third most. I don't really know if this movie in particular is better or worse than the two movies we're going to review tomorrow, okay? Or if it's even that much better or worse than, let's say, The Sisters Brothers, right? Or maybe it's is it really that... I mean, I think... I, I don't know. I think it is better than The Predator or <laughs> White Boy Rick. But this movie, A Star is Born has been remade this mo- this iteration of it is the fourth iteration of the film ever okay one was once was released in the 30s once was released in the 50s the most recent version before this was released in the 70s with Barbara Streisand and Chris Christopherson and now it is coming out again with Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga so i don't know when i saw the trailer for this movie i freely admit i thought this movie looked like crap i thought it looked bad i thought the trailer was uninteresting I knew it was a remake. I wasn't I wasn't interested. How many remakes can Hollywood get away with for one movie, much less a movie that's going into its fourth remake? You know what I mean? So 
I was pretty underwhelmed by this project at every aspect. I think originally, you may or may not remember if you were following this movie, but Beyonce was actually attached to this project in the Lady Gaga role. I would love to see that version someday. I don't know if, I mean, if this movie's been remade four times, God knows it'll probably be remade a fifth in like, what, 25 years or something? 15, 25, 15, 20, 25 years? But regardless, I have to admit, when I saw this film, I was blown away. I was honestly blown away. This movie is fantastic. So before I just end up doing the whole review right now, let's get to the little musical interlude and then get right to the review of A Star Is Born. very podcast we've spoken about the ideas of expectations do you guys remember that i mean the whole idea that when you go into a movie with high expectations it's harder for those expectations to be met therefore you might not think so highly of the film afterwards versus going into a film with low or even zero expectations so you come out more easily impressed right i'll be honest and i mean again like i just mentioned before the music i thought the trailer for this movie looked like garbage garbagio okay I was super unimpressed. I thought some unkind things about both stars, and I kind of just mentally moved on. So at TIFF, I was in line, and so many of the press and industry people were talking about the screening the next day, the press screening, that I changed my mind to go see a different movie and hit up A Star is Born instead. And let me tell you, boy, I, I was blown away. I was blown away. I mean, I rarely say that about a movie. Usually I try and be a little more tempered, even-tempered, let's say, but... Again, considering I was pretty down on it, I had my entire opinion changed. It's it's quite remarkable. I don't think I've ever really had that happen to me before. Maybe the other way, like when I was consi- I was hoping a movie would be really good, and then I go see it, and I think, wow, that movie, that movie sucked. I was about to curse there. I try not to curse, but you know what I mean. Like I, I like Suicide Squad was one of those movies for me, right? But A Star Is Born is the first time I really think that I was like, well, okay, all right, here we go, here we go, and then and then and then it, it ended up being amazing. Right At its core, this movie is about a young woman who has a chance of meeting with a rock star, and their lives, for both of them, are irrevocably changed, right? And let me get this out of the way first. The movie is not perfect. After they meet and get involved with each other, the two characters, Allie and Jackson, okay, the movie falls into a lull, and it's easy for it to get a bit lost, maybe? Just kind of meanders around a little bit before it gets back to the ending, which ends on a really high note, I will say. Very daring, kind of flips it on you when you least expect it kind of end, if that makes sense. Not narratively, but just visually. And it, so it ends and starts and ends in a great note, but in the middle, it's kind of a little boring, right? Easy for it to get lost, like I said. So that was kind of one strike against it. And on top of that, it was weird to me that Ali, of course, Lady Gaga's character, starts off with power rock and kind of country ballads, as you heard before, and then when her own star takes off, she kind of switches to this bubblegum pop star image. And maybe that was just to differentiate her from Jackson again, who is the rock star boyfriend by Bradley Cooper. But it was a little weird choice, right? It was just, those are the two, kind of the two main criticisms for me. But that's kind of it, you know? Like I got kind of wanted to get the criticisms out of the way because, hey, it's important because no movie is perfect. But let me tell you this. The first 45 to maybe 60 minutes of this movie... 
it is filmmaking at its finest, okay? It is, I don't want to say it's perfection, but it's pretty damn close. Every single character gets a smooth introduction of some kind. Jackson's rock concert at the beginning, where the crowd noise is deafening, even in the movie theater itself, to Allie's first performance at a drag bar where she sings La Vie en Rose while looking directly up at Jackson. But he's really looking at, she's really looking up into the camera, I should say, Hence, uh, the audience, which is really cool. It's kind of a dream-like, hazy area. I don't know. It's really great. Sam Elliott, he of the Ram commercials, you know, Ram, trucks, glory, Ram, brings his hurry, heavy baritone voice to the proceedings in what is perhaps his role of a career, of a lifetime, right? Even though there are some awards chatter for him, and he is awesome in it, but I don't really feel like he had to do a lot comparatively. Still really good, though, right? But the movie starts off 45 minutes 60 minutes or so, amazing. I don't, there's not a lot of, it doesn't really get much better than that, let's say, right? But here's the thing. Let's get to the two stars, Bradley Cooper and Lady Gaga. Cooper's amazing. You know he is. It's kind of funny, right? There's actually a, a dramatic moment where you learn that Jackson had, quote-unquote, stolen Bobby's voice, Bobby being Sam Elliott's character, his older brother, because he had the talent, Bobby didn't. It goes into more in the movie, but I thought that was funny because Cooper in this movie really does lower his voice into this growly country drawl rasp, right? You learn he's from Arizona. He has this kind of Southern, not quite Southern, kind of slight kind of growl and... Maybe I shouldn't be surprised, right? This is the same guy who does the voice of Rocket Raccoon, right? So obviously he's a great voice voice actor. Regardless, he's amazing. And he lends Jackson this kind of... Hmm, this kind of confused charm, you know, it kind of kind of immediately takes you in and enraptures the audience completely. And of course, it does sort of Lady Gaga's alley as well. And here's the thing. That's where we have to spend some extra time because Lady Gaga truly is sublime. It's kind of weird that her amazing performance, this nuanced performance of someone who doesn't believe what is happening to her, someone who is seeing her life changing radically before her eyes, someone who takes a risk and sees the payoff, someone who doesn't really know what's going to happen in the end, right? It's so amazing, but it's strange that because of this performance, it seems like a coming out party for her, right? And it's weird because... Lady Gaga is one of the most popular musicians in the face of the planet, right? And she's been acting in stuff, mostly TV, fair enough, for years now. But even so, it feels fresh, like we haven't seen it before. And at this point in time, I gotta think that the best actress Oscar is hers to lose. It's so, so good, the performance she gives. And as a side note, I know I shouldn't do that. I know I shouldn't frame things in terms of Oscars and awards, because regardless of the treat to watch, it doesn't really matter if she gets an award for it or not, because... It doesn't, it doesn't make it less good, right? It doesn't make it less good than Nicole Kidman in Destroyer. It doesn't make it less good than Natalie Portman in Vox Lux, right? It doesn't make them better if they get a, an award and Lady Gaga doesn't or vice versa, right? It doesn't really matter because, like I said, it's a treat to watch. And maybe by doing that, it somewhat diminishes other aspects of the movies in ways maybe I'm not even aware of, right? But I think ultimately you want, you being the audience, you being me is in some parts, right? You want to see good things rewarded, even if it is with a golden idol to worship as Stephen Goldberg said at the Emmys a few years ago. But regardless, I think it would be a great story for Lady Gaga. But ultimately, I think of the movies I've seen personally, even though I did mention Nicole Kidman and Destroyer, even earlier in this very episode... I do think the best performance I've seen from an actress this year has been Lady Gaga. I'm not just saying that because I think the movie is great, which obviously I do, but 
it's really, really good. I, I loved every part of what she does. And it's it's so amazing to see that. And maybe I think the Oscars are a little bit political. Maybe a little, very, very political, certainly. But I think the Oscars do like to reward that. And it, it's a... It's a movie that's about show business, right? I think she could get rewarded in the same way that Emma Stone got rewarded last year for La La Land. Not that she didn't deserve it. She also, I think, deserved it. But I'm just saying that's kind of how the Oscars operate. And I would be shocked to see her, at least right now, lose. But, of course, we have to see how the awards team goes, right? And, of course, I can't really mention A Star is Born without mentioning the fact, without discussing the fact that Bradley Cooper also directed this film, okay? He really just lets the movie be. He just lets it breathe. And I think that's to the extreme benefit of the film as a whole. He doesn't really do anything super complicated. No crazy traction shots, nothing nuts, maybe a few too many lens flares from time to time. But that's about it. He just lets the movie focus on the performance of the two leads, and of course, one of which is himself, right? But still, they're great performances. And as you heard to start the review, the music is pretty fantastic as well. That first moment where Lady Gaga steps to the mic, which is what we just listened to, my gosh, that's... What what a moment from the movie, right? Like I got chills just from listening it again while doing this episode, while preparing for this episode, if that's any indication how much I enjoyed it. I've gone on a little long with this, so let me just end by saying this. A Star is Born is one of the year's best movies, bar none. It has amazing music, amazing performances, amazing visuals. It's going to appeal to a lot of people and will definitely for sure be a contender in pretty much every major category, right? It's going to be a contender in Best Director, the two major acting awards, probably Best Supporting Actor, probably not Best Supporting Actress, I don't think. There's, I don't think there's anyone in that kind of role there, right? The th- those three acting awards, best director, probably best screenplay, probably best score, best original song. It's going to be really all over the place. Best cinematography, maybe. And will the steam for all those awards last until the 91st Oscars in, what, five or six months? Maybe, maybe not. But I'll just tell you this, that if you're on the fence about seeing this movie, don't be. Hop down off that fence and go see it as soon as it's in theaters because it's really, really, really good. That's it for me today. I hope you enjoyed these six quick hitting reviews. I usually like to go what? I think we usually go 15 to 20 minutes a movie. And we usually do two movies, an episode, which usually usually times out to between 35 and 45 minutes, depending on how long I go in each movie. Maybe we don't do the news at the beginning. Maybe we do. So that's generally how the podcast goes, right? And we fit in six movies in generally the same time today, right? About six and a half, seven minutes an episode, I got. I went with nine for A Star Is Born, but regardless, I think we saw. I saw some great movies at TIFF this year. Everyone who had to go to TIFF, it's always a real treat because it's such a premier event in Toronto. So we got one more episode in terms of TIFF recaps. Uh, the movies that will be coming on the next episode for sure. These are movies I've seen and will be doing reviews of. Are Widows, Can You Ever Forgive Me, The Hummingbird Project, First Man, and Green Book. So I said a few times during this episode that. The number one and number two movies of the festival are of those five. So can you guess what they are? I'll let you guys think about what you think those five were, which which two of those five are the two best movies I saw, Tiff. So think about those ones. Try and decipher, try and guess, and we'll talk about it on the next episode. But for now, for now, you've been listening to the Showtime Movie Podcast. I'm show as always. Find me on Twitter, SNS Alley, SNS A-L-L-I, or find the show on Twitter at... Showtime Movies, S-H-O Time Movies. This has been a special TIFF wrap-up episode for TIFF 2018. Thank you for listening. Have a great night. Love is a burning thing. 
bound by wild desire, I fell into a ring of fire. I fell into a burning ring of fire. I went down, 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 and the flames got higher. And it burns, burns, burns. The ring of fire. The ring of fire.